We'll be back into the book of Romans again if you want to go to Romans chapter 13. And I promise you this time it will be Romans chapter 13. This, this new section in Romans all started in chapter 12 with the call from Paul that we should set ourselves up as being living sacrifices unto the Lord. In other words, some things in us have to be put to death. Sacrifice in itself is a, 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 a living and sacrifice in the same in the same sentence supposes some sort of oxymoron there that one doesn't sort of live with the other that sacrifice indicates death or some sort of real putting away of something and that has to be us we have to be these living sacrifices that are although we're alive we're alive to Christ and not to the things of this world and Paul speaks in chapter 12 about how we should treat each other and how we should live with one another and how we should honour one another above ourselves and how do we do that well we do that by no giving offence or no taking offence we do that by being prepared to forgive each other being prepared to walk in the footsteps of our Lord to be able to just be a diverse group of people together because that's exactly what was happening in the church at Rome there were a number of Jews and a number of Gentiles and although there were Jews there they were of different nationalities if you want to call them that they were, they were from Parthia and they were from Cilicia they were from Italy they were from North Africa there were many different nationalities of people although they would call themselves by religion Jews <coughs> and of course in the Gentile sense of the word you know, the Gentile sense of the word biblically is just anybody that's a non-Jew by religion or by birth so that's how Paul exhorts us to look after each other to pray for each other to be a people that honour each other above ourselves and then the natural progression in this is right at the end of chapter 12 he says you know if your enemy is hungry feed him and if he's thirsty give him something to drink in this way you will pour burning coals upon his head in other words you will bring some sort of humility into his life and, and the proverb that comes from says that God will reward you and so we get to that part there where vengeance is mine says the Lord I will repay so there's no room in the Christian's life for vengeance there's no room for taking retribution in each other that in some measure is what I suppose we're talking about when we talk about honouring each other that we don't wait for an opportunity to take revenge on one another for something that's happened in the past something that may indeed be be serious and something that might be not so serious I suppose the more serious it is the more forgiveness we have to have and the more we have to cling unto the Lord to get past these things but Paul then goes on to chapter 13 here and I want to just say a few words before we hit chapter 13 because it really is it's an ongoing thing from chapter 12 in this world where and even in this country where politicians seem to be held in very low regard at the moment. And there are many people who just don't trust them anymore. It's difficult to understand why we should pray for them. It's difficult to understand why we should be subject to them. And why we should be asked to obey them. But that's exactly 
the job that says the, the Christian should do, that Paul says the Christian should do. We, we should be subservient to our government, submissive to our government. We think of our government here in this country and we moan and we groan about the people who run the government and, you know, there's, if there's 55 million people in this country, there's 55 million potential prime ministers. You know, it's a, we all want to be armchair politicians. And there are things that we don't like about the government and there are things that we do like about the government. I mean, one of the things I do like about the government is that they tell you that you have to drive on this side of the road and there are certain speed limits and, you know, and that's part of governance. And I know this is, uh, sounds a bit kind of fanciful, but, you know, if we, as we spoke about before, if we could even keep God's law, the Ten Commandments, even on the outside... We wouldn't need a government because we would be living the way that God wants us to live and therefore we would have no need for actual governance. And where there is no government in this world at the moment we sadly see the result. We see the results in places like Sudan. We see the results in places like Nigeria, Syria, Egypt, you name it. There are so many places today that claim to have some form of government and yet don't have any form of government. And so, at the start of chapter 13, and it's a, it's, a, it's a push on from chapter 12, where Paul talks about, you know, not taking vengeance. And in some measure he's talking about the government as well. He brings it from a personal point of view and expands it out to be a, sort of a global or at least country-wide thing. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, he says in verse 1. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. You know, they talk there about the, the, the authorities bearing the sword and, and many commentators put that down to just, you know, bringing punishment on the people. But the Roman authorities that were there at that point in time, and remember that Paul's writing this when he's under the rule of Nero, one of the most cruel and despotic emperors that ever walked the earth. Him and probably Claudius were probably two of the worst. But here we are, and he's saying to them, these people have a rightful authority because God is over all things. Whenever we see things going wrong, we've got to accept that God's in control and God knows what's happening. But when they say about bringing the sword, you know, the sword was used as the form of punishment in the Roman Empire. If you were found guilty of a, a major offence, then you get your head chopped off with a sword. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low, the scum, the criminals, the low class. 
That was why, of course, Jesus was crucified because he was crucified with the with, with, with the scum of the earth. He was considered to be nothing. And yet here we are. Paul is is actually saying, you know, the Roman authorities, if you don't obey them, they have every right to take you to the chopping block and knock your head off. That there is a a case here for for capital punishment in some measure. There's only capital punishment. They can only administer capital punishment because God has put them in the authoritative position to do that. The link from chapter 12 and 13 is clear. The Christian and the individual should not take revenge, but the government who functions under God's authority, they have the right to bring the correct punishments. That, of course, is irrespective of how bad or good the government is. Most governments, and I'm not saying all, and most of these countries I've spoken about, like Syria, etc., they, they don't have any governance at the present time. Therefore, you see what happens when, when governance is not there. I, I wonder, you know, and, and, as I read the things that are happening in these places, I wonder how many people in Libya would, would long for the days of, of Gaddafi to come back. Because at least there was sense and there was order in the place. There might have been tyranny, but there was sense and there was order. I wonder how many people in Baghdad at the moment are wishing Saddam Hussein was back in action. Because at least under those circumstances there was some sort of governance. And I believe in some measure when we see the collapse of all these states at this point in time God in some measure has shown us what it's like where there is no authority where people just literally take the law into their own hands and we have to be careful as a people in our own land that we don't do that that we don't end up taking vengeance uh, either on each other or on the governments that's in Nero when he was in power in Rome at this point in time most of you know that uh, he set Rome in fire for his own ends because he wanted to build some new stuff in Rome so he set a section of Rome in fire so that he could then clear the burned area and build some temples and some places that, in which he would be honoured but the fire got out of hand and literally the whole of Rome burned and at the end of the day the people pointed the finger at Nero it was your fault Nero you started the fire and of course what did he do like all good politicians he deflected it he blamed the Christians and he blamed the Christians for burning down Rome and people picked that up and Nero then went on a rampage where he would take Christians and the skins the the bloody skins of wild animals and he would stitch them up inside them and then set a pack of rabid dogs on them so that they would be torn to pieces that was his vengeance if you want to call it and I've said before you know they dipped them in tar oil and put them in poles up in his garden set them in fire so you guys want to be the light of the world go ahead and that that is the type of governance that Paul is saying that we should pray for I mean how do you pray for that type of governance in the natural you can't do that it is only because you're led by the spirit that you can do it it's only because we can do that 
But you see where Nero was, we find the same situation where Hitler found himself. He found himself with a country in 1933 that was devoid of all economic uh, stability, all governance. And he came in and what did he do? He deflected it onto the Jews. The Jews were the, the subspecies. We are the chosen people, were the, was the war cry from Hitler. And of course we know the consequences of that. And you know, it's not my intention to get political this morning, because that's not my place to do that. But when I look at Nero and the way he dealt with the things that he'd done wrong, and I look at Hitler and the way he dealt with things wrong, we need to be very careful of rabid nationalism. It can lead us into a place where we start to, to pick on people who are innocent in the matter. He was no special friend of Christians, Nero, and neither was neither of the governments today here in this country. And yet we have a stable government. We have a democracy, we so call a democracy, and it keeps things in reasonable order. We don't have any real fear of going out and walking the streets. We don't have any real fear of somebody coming, chatting our door and busting down our door and robbing our houses. I mean, we've even got the same situation. I was years ago, I was in South Africa, long before I was a Christian. And the black people in South Africa were very much the oppressed. And, uh, and the whites took advantage of it. And everything that happened was the fault of the black people. And you know, even in this country, not that many years ago, maybe 100, 120 years ago, we were sending people to Australia because they stole a loaf of bread. Of a, of a baker's stand we were doing all sorts of terrible things to each other because the governance wasn't there the, 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 the people were not prepared to pray for their government all they were prepared to do was to criticise their government we need to be a people that pray for a government if we do what is right with no fear of the law Paul says any government in some measure if it is a government, can be an effective tool in keeping the base desires of fallen mankind. I mean, people are, in many places in the world today, we look in places like India, who's supposed to have a stable government, and yet we find women being raped, thousand a month, apparently. I looked up the last time I saw. We saw lately women being hanged for trees after they had been gang raped the authorities not prepared to take anything to do with it so what do we do with it what do we do with it how can we pray for such a government how can we pray for a policeman that when you go to him and say my daughter's been kidnapped and gang raped and is hanging for a tree there and he laughs at you that's just the way it is hey? sorry we have to really be in that place where God wants us. That's, that's, that's the place that Paul talks about. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. One of these days Christ is coming back and he will bring vengeance with him. A just and terrible vengeance. And all these so-called governments of the world and all these people who have thought that, that they ruled the world that will come to an end. All the nations will bow down. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.
You know, when I think about the people in Iraq and Syria, maybe wanting to go back to the days of Assad and Saddam Hussein, the children of Israel did the same thing in the desert. When they were wandering in the desert and the Egyptians were chasing them and they had no food and no water. I was better off in Egypt. Take me back to Egypt where, where there was vegetables and where there was cream and where there was honey and there was nothing of the kind. They were slaves. They might have been kept relatively well fed but they certainly didn't have the, have the food that they spoke about in their imagination. And it's one of these things, you know, when, when we look at what's happening in our own country, we really need to pray for our own country and for the government of our country and we need to pray for governance for all of these other countries because at the end of the day whether we agree with them or not we need governance within this country and within the countries of this world otherwise the whole place is going to hell in a handcart it probably is anyway Moses when he led the children of Israel through the desert and they berated him take us back to Egypt Moses' rule was of God he was a man in touch with God and yet, he gets so frustrated and so fed up with these people. He said to God, he said, these are your people. They're no mine. You have them. I'm sick of them. So even when it was God's rule, it wasn't always popular. And when, and when Moses applied God's law the way that he should have applied it, or, when he, sorry, I'll rephrase that. When he applied God's law the way he shouldn't have applied it, Moses wasn't always right. Remember when he stood at the rock at Meribah and he was told to speak to the rock and the rock would pour forth water. And Moses was that fed up with the people, he actually struck the rock. And the people were blessed. But just because the leader appears to be doing what's right doesn't mean to say that it is right. It may appear the right way but it's done for all the wrong reasons. And that very act, that very act of rebellion against God cost Moses his opportunity to enter the promised land. Basically, God said to him, Moses, my office now. We need to talk. <coughs> and he was told there and then. And that was really because in some measure, Moses was not prayerfully approaching his governance to the people. No matter what position you have, whether you're a gaffer, whether you're a care worker who has got authority over somebody else, whether you're the pastor of a church, whether you're an elder, whether you're the prime minister, unless we approach governance in a prayerful fashion, it's not going to work. And that was the point that Paul was trying to make to people here. Because there were so many zealots and splinter groups and all the rest of it wanting to defeat and to defame and all the rest of it and Paul says the, the, way, the way to change the governments of this world is to pray for them that is the change that will come about that will be a lasting change we know that over these and it's not to say and, and please don't think that I'm telling you that, that you should just accept everything that governments say it's quite clear in the book of Acts that it tells us that if, if it disagrees with what God's law should be then we've no uh, there's no obligement upon us to obey it we obey God first and man second and uh, Peter 
Paul and John were the same. They, they were told, we're not going to beat you this time, but, but preach no more in this man Jesus' name. And he said, what should I do? God tells me to do it, and you tell me not to. I've got to obey, obey God. Well, the same situation in this country at the moment with the, with the uh, legislation that's been passed on homosexual marriage and the change to the marriage laws where some churches are introducing homosexual pastors and leaders to the churches and this should not be and we have to pray for the leadership of these churches that things will change we have to pray for our government that things will change that somewhere down the line they'll realise that they've got this wrong that they can't stand against God it seems it seems at the moment even in this country that you can have any opinion you like as long as it's not a Christian opinion as long as it doesn't tie up with the word of God otherwise your class has been narrow minded so this is why verse 6 Paul says this is also why you pay your taxes <laughs> for the authorities are God's servants who give them full time to governing give to everyone what you owe them if you owe them taxes pay your taxes if revenue then revenue or customs if you want to call it that if respect then respect and if honour then honour so what is he saying here if you want to honour God then honour the government under which you serve be submissive to them you might not always be in a position where you can obey them but in the main, we should be able to obey our governments <clears throat> where there is a government. And I exclude all of these countries where all these wars are at the moment because there is no governance. So we need to pray for governance. Excuse me. <coughs> Give respect to them. Now, we may not have any great respect for David Cameron as Prime Minister or Nick Clegg as Deputy or, or Ed Miliband. Or, we may not have any respect for these men in terms of who they are, but we should have respect for the office that they hold. And that's what we're praying for. We're praying for people who should be in these offices, who should be looking for godly direction. I'm sure at times, and I do it myself, it's through gritted teeth that I pray for these people. God bless them. <laughs> I've just put the taxes up, but God bless them. Good methods of government, and we have a good method of government in this country. It's one of the best in the world. But it can be ruined by bad governors. So we need to be very, very clear and very, very sure that when you go in to cast your vote, you're not voting for a Christian. You're voting for the man that's as close to Christian values as you can find, or the woman. Better not be sexist in it. <laughs> and that's what Paul's trying to say. I mean, they didn't even have a vote at that time. The people in Rome must have been astonished, especially the, the, the church who were persecuted by Nero. I mean, what is this Paul telling us? Pray for Nero. I'd rather see him in the end of a stick with a sword through his heart. And yet that's the natural man. We have to be the supernatural man. We have to allow the Spirit of God to move in us for the things and the people that we despise 
and that we hate and we all do there's no point in being being uh, silly about it just because we're Christians doesn't mean to say we don't have our own prejudices we do and we need to pray for those prejudices we need to pray that God will heal us of those prejudices and bring us to that right path where we can truly pray for these people and having said all that again I say in Acts 4 tells us that when things are not right we should resist them and yes we have every right to resist the change to the marriage law and we have every right to question whether homosexuals should be raised into the ministry and be leaders of churches we have every right to do that but having said that we must never ever take it for the point of view that because these people are who they are and they're doing what they are that they're necessarily our enemies they're not our enemies I said this the last time I spoke how do you make your enemy how do you destroy your enemy you make him your friend God says let us sit down and reason one with another sometimes we saw in chapter 12 live at peace with everyone sometimes it's not always possible to live at peace with everyone but again it's taking it to prayer Lord help me to live at peace Help me to live at peace with more prejudices and the things that trouble me. And so we go on at verse 8 here and he slightly changes tack here, Paul. And he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to neighbour. Therefore love is the fulfilment of law. And Jesus asked a question when he told the parable about the good Samaritan. Who is my neighbour? Or at least one of the Pharisees asked him. And then he, he told him the parable. And he told him a shocking parable about a man by the side of the road who was left for dead and the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite walked past him and left him and he was a Jew he was one of their own and yet along came a Samaritan and you know when Jesus would be telling this story I can almost hear the intake of breath for the crowd (gasps) Samaritan don't talk to me about Samaritans and this is where our prejudices come in we get prejudiced against people and we end up every time their names mentioned or their groups mentioned we rail at it we do the same thing when we talk about Palestinians and we talk about Muslims and we talk about all these other things we get sometimes we get a bit how dare those people lecture us and yet you know the, 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 the point that Jesus was trying to get across and the point that Paul trying to get across is here that loving your neighbour it's not some abstract theory this is real people we're dealing with here loving your neighbour is not just about loving the people in your fellowship although that's a good start loving your neighbour is about loving everybody that you come into contact with that was the whole point of the parable about the, about the good Samaritan that he was a guy that went the extra he not only looked after the guy and put him up in lodgings he told the innkeeper I've got to go and do my business but keep him and I'll leave you the money for him and and if 
If you run out when I come back this way, I'll, I'll pop in and if I owe you anything, I'll, I'll make it up to you. So he was prepared to do the extra and this, <clears throat> this was a Samaritan. And the, the one thing that Jesus did say at the end of that parable when he spoke to the people, he said, so when you hear that story that I've just told you, who was this man's neighbour? This man who was lying at the side of the road. Who was his neighbour? Was it the Jewish priest who walked past on the other side? Was it the Levite who just averted his eyes and, and thought, well, I can't contaminate myself with this. I'm going to a festival and uh, I can't touch blood or dead bodies or whatever. No, it was a Samaritan. It was the one, it was the one who, if this guy who was beaten up at the side of the road, if he was in good health, he would have spat at a Samaritan. And yet, it was a Samaritan that came to his aid. That's where the, the offshoot of this is, you know, as we work through, as we work through praying for our governments, as we work through talking about paying for taxes, Paul very cleverly changes the tack here. Because he's asked you to do all of these things and, and then he says let no debt remain outstanding. He, he cleverly uses his language saying you know, you owe all that to your government. You owe all that to, to, to what's happening in your life. And, and to be honest, under the Roman rule at this point in time they had a system which they called Pax Romana which was Roman peace. Pax being peace and Romana being Roman. And it was, a, it was a tyrannical rule. If you stepped out of line, whack, you chopped your head off. But boy, did it keep the peace. And, and it kept the peace. And, and I believe in some measure that it, it came in probably, the Romans were, were probably at their height just around the time that Jesus uh, was born. And I think at the end of the day, God engineered this to bring this Pax Romana. Because before the Romans actually governed or, or, or developed this method of government it was very difficult to travel between country and country it was very difficult to travel the roads because there were bandits and all sorts of things and so for people like Joseph and Mary to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem would have been an extremely hazardous task but for the fact that Pax Romana was in place and people were held in check by the very fact that if you get caught your head was off Let don't, no debt remain outstanding. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't lend or borrow. But not to know, owe anything because you've done your best for people. The good Samaritan thing. Let no debt remain outstanding. Don't, don't think that because you've done something for somebody and you see that there's another need there, that you've done it all. You need to be somebody who is the neighbour to them. Not in some abstract notion, but a real concept. Everybody you meet, everybody that you meet is your neighbour. Whether you have a prejudice against them, or whether you love them, or whether you hate them. And Jesus said the same thing here in Luke, Luke chapter 6. He said in verse 27, I'll just read it to you. But to you who are listening... And I would imagine that at this point in time, at this place in the Sermon on the Mount, some people may have been quite offended by what he would already said to them. So he said to them, to you who are listening, I say, and, and in some measure I could say the same to you, to you who are listening, to you who have no prejudicially turned off at the present time, 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Could that be your government? Could that be anybody? Could that be the guy next door to you? If someone slaps you on the one cheek, turn to them the other also. Difficult, isn't it? It's difficult in the natural. Well, I could say it's difficult in the spiritual, let alone the natural. I always remember, and it's, a, and it's a funny story in some measure, there was a great big American when I was working in the prison fellowship, and I, or for the life of me I cannot remember his name, but he was a big cowboy. He was six foot four, built like a bull. He always wore this big fancy ten gallon hat thing and you know, the cowboy boots. You can picture the guy, the slim blue jeans. And we took him into the prison and, and he had a tremendous testimony of this guy. And this wee Glasgow punter, he comes up to me and he says, you are the guys that if, uh, if I slap you in the face, you'll turn the other cheek. And the big guy very, very quietly answered. He said, well, it's never happened to me before. He says, but if you want to try it, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and it was, it was just one of these funny moments, you know, it was... Uh, and, and the guy was a big gentle giant I mean I, I honestly believe that if the guy had slapped him he, he wouldn't have retaliated but he just gave him that you know he says nobody's ever done that before but if you want to try it we'll see what happens for there you know. if someone slaps you in the cheek turn to them the other also now what's Paul, what is Jesus talking about with slapping people in the cheek it's an insult, isn't it? It's giving somebody an insult, and it doesn't matter. Slap of the cheek is just a, a, a euphemism, if you want to call it, for, for any insult that's put against you. You know, if someone slaps you in the cheek, turn to them the other also. In other words, you know, if you're offended by something, don't, don't take the offence and don't let it fester in you. And don't let it become a prejudice in you. And he says also, if someone takes your coat, this is still in Luke 6, do not withhold your shirt from them. Now, I know that sounds a bit, someone takes your coat, who would take your coat? State my coat, and nobody would want it. But this was something that a Roman soldier was given the authority to do, under the government authority. If he was walking down the road and it started to really pour, and you were walking down the road and you had a nice coat with a hood in it, he could demand that you give him the coat. And he could take it off you. And he could use it for his own purposes. That was the giving of the coat. So what Jesus is saying, if someone takes your coat from you, give them your shirt as well. Here. If you need that, you need that as well. Now that, what a concept that is. That, I mean, I struggle with that. I mean, I'd rather slap them in the face. <laughs> Give, give, and the next bit when Jesus talks about it he says give to everyone who asks you and if anyone takes what belongs to you don't demand it back do to others as you would have them do to you now these are quite radical things that Jesus is saying here but that's the empowerment of the spirit that's where we should be heading we should, we should be really what he's saying here is if anyone takes what belongs to you don't demand it back we should hold in so low a regard the things of this world that we can do without them not to say that you won't get things back but we shouldn't 
demand them back. And the word here, demand, means don't take somebody to court to get them back. That's really, don't take legal action to, to get them returned to you. And in Luke chapter 6, again here at verse 32, he says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. When you see that, I mean, I was like that when I was a drinker. All my drinking buddies loved me. I mean, I loved all my drinking buddies. Because you just sat there and get hammered. And just talked to each other. No, talked at each other. Nobody listened. You just talked and you had a great night. So, I mean, it's easy to love people like that. It's because, because the love that's asked for is only that deep. You know, I recognised that when I became a Christian because all, all of the people that I thought were friends just drifted away because I wasn't a drinking buddy anymore. I wanted to talk about life and talk about serious things, talk about eternity. They weren't interested. They just wanted to get hammered and talk to each other. And that was it. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And in verse 34, Luke 6, if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. I mean, that gets... That is something that we really need to pray for. We really need to pray for, you know, when somebody asks you for money, I mean, at points in time I've had people come to me in the church and ask for money and they've been in bad situations and all the rest of it and, and we've willingly given it. And people have naturally at some point in time come back and given it back and that's great. But some other people couldn't. But there was no demand from us to give it back. Because I am of that opinion. You know, if you, don't, if you want to lend something to somebody, don't expect to get it back. If you expect to get it back, don't give it. Because then all you'll get is disillusioned and despondent about it. It would be, it would be glorious to think that every time that we gave something, that we got it back. But sometimes we give love and we don't get it back. Sometimes we give someone our coat and they want our shirt as well. And we don't get it back. But that's the whole point of having the spirit-filled life. That we love one another. Love your enemies. I mean, Jesus here isn't even talking about us as being friends. He's talking about our enemies. Love your enemies. If you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? It's easy to be friendly with people that are friendly to you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. There's nobody in this world that God withholds His sunshine from. There's nobody in this world that God withholds his reign from. Everybody is subject to the same things. It doesn't matter in this country whether we're Christian, whether we're Muslim, whether we're Jew. It rains on us all. And the sunshine, when it comes out, it suns on us all. God is good to all, whether they love him or they hate him. 
And that in some measure sums up what Jesus was trying to say here. Love your enemies because I loved your enemies. I loved my enemies, said Jesus. Remember, guys, that we were, we were God's enemies. We were God's enemies. And yet he loved us and went to the cross. And do this at verse 11. We're back in Romans 13 now. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. You know, people are sleepwalking at the moment. The church is sleepwalking in a disaster at the moment. People, and I mean by sleepwalking, they're sleepwalking away from the word of God. Anything that seems reasonable and and good, let's have that. That'll be alright. And it's not alright. If it doesn't tie in with the word of God, we shouldn't begin anywhere near it. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. And Paul said that in a time when Nero was governor, that Jesus was coming back. And how much sooner is he coming back now? The night is nearly over. Let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently. As in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Debauchery or licentiousness, in the sense here, the Greek word, it's a word that means a desire for a different bed. In other words, it's this constant lusting after either women lusting after men or men lusting after women and it really shows in some measure Paul says you know you forget the times Christ is coming and coming back soon and you're going to be caught in somebody else's bed and it really shows no, no regard for sexual purity or fidelity all of these things that Paul spoke about there in that uh, passage the sexual immorality, the debauchery, the carousing and the drunkenness. These in the main are sins of the heart. These are things that, that we relish within us. Christ is coming soon, says Paul, and we should have no part in him. If we continue to practice these things, we show our lack of love for our Saviour. And for each other. And for our neighbours. And we show our lack of love for ourselves. Love your, love your neighbour as yourself. If your neighbour's out there as a drug addict or whatever, if he's out there as a radical Muslim, if he's out there as a whatever else you want to call him, we should be trying to show them love. How can we do it? Paul started and finished with us. We have to pray. We have to pray for those in authority, we have to pray for those that we love. We have to pray for those that we don't love. We have to pray for our enemies. We have to pray for those who are, are, are violently against us. And he says here, clothe yourself with Christ Jesus. And the whole word there, the whole structure of the thing there says, is the idea of taking something off to put on new clothes. And, and the best thing I can think of as I was thinking for an analogy for this was, was a boy that I had as a pupil at school and he was stinking 
I mean, he really... Uh, in the drawing class, when we were doing technical drawing, and you remember leaning over his shoulder to show him something, I was gagging at the smell of this boy. And he was, it was vile. And of course, people mocked him and made a fool of him. And I took him aside one day, and I'll just call him Peter for the sake of Peter. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Um, I said, Peter, I said, you know, you're getting to that age, son, you're 14, 15 year old, you're starting to sort of get into puberty, and you're starting to sweat a bit more, and you're starting to smell a bit more. I says, now, you really need to think about that and get yourself washed up properly, and all the rest of it. <clears throat> and I gave him deodorant and spray and all the rest of it and stuff. I says, here, you take them home, get yourself washed and whatever. I mean, to have to teach a 15-year-old boy personal hygiene is, is sad. And Peter turned up the next day at school, <clears throat> and he was shining like a pin, hair all combed and face bright. But as soon as I got within three feet of him, he was stinking. <laughs> and why was that? Because his clothes were filthy. He'd washed himself, but he'd never taken the dirty clothes off. And that's the point that Paul's making here. There's no point in being washed in the blood of Jesus if you're going to walk about with the dirty clothes still on. You still stink. You know, you need to clothe yourself with the righteousness of Christ. You need to literally take off those dirty rags and put on those blood-soaked rags that bring salvation and that bring the ability into your life to pray for those in authority over you, to pray for those that hate you, to pray for those that would do harm to you. And it is all founded in prayer. It's founded in that spirit-filled, spirit-led life. It's not in any other way. When we give ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord, if we seek Him through His living Word, all these other things that Paul spoke about and Jesus spoke about, they'll all come as a direct result. They may not all come at once, but they'll all come. They'll all be there. So let our prayer be. You know, the disciples prayed, Lord, teach us to pray. My prayer is, Lord, teach us to love. And especially love our enemies and those in authority over us. Because that, that's the basis of change in this world. The basis of change starts in a spirit-filled life that starts to pray for other people that they might become spirit-filled and filled with the knowledge and the goodness of Christ Jesus to take off the filthy rags and to put on the newness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, these things are hard. These things are hard for us in the natural to accept, Lord, but Lord, I pray that you would teach us in the supernatural, Lord, in the way your spirit, Father, to look in a different way at things, Lord. To be a people that would be prepared to pray for those in authority over us, even though, Lord, we don't agree with them. Even though, Lord, we, we, we despise them. Lord, help us to be that people that love our enemies, Lord. Whether they be personal or whether they be political. Lord, <coughs> excuse me. Help us to be a people that are walking in your spirit, Lord. And are looking, Lord, to you through the eyes of faith, Father. Not, not being despondent about the way this world's going and the lack of governance in it, Lord. All it shows us is that without you, there is no government in this world. Lord, we do pray for our own government today. We pray, Lord, for the 
British government. We pray for the Scottish government, Lord. We pray for them, Lord, that you would guide them and direct them and keep them. That you would bring salvation into them, Lord. And that you would help them to make right and proper and godly decisions. And we know, Lord, as we ask that, Lord, that we, we sometimes lack the faith to believe it. But so, Lord, help us. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to pray for those who are in authority over us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If anybody would like prayer this morning, we